This is the Valarin Perspective. Welcome. This is Benjamin Carsage. I'm Aaron Smith. And I'm Chris Vaughn. We explore working, leading, and finding value in an uncertain world. You got a lot of choices out there. Thanks for listening to us. Let's get rolling. Today, we're going to be diving back into incentives. And we're going to get into more and possibly some positive examples of how we influence each other's behavior, whether intentionally or otherwise. We've been using stories to illustrate a lot of the important concepts we're discussing and trying to convey around these things and these topics. I really wanted to tell a story from my first week at Riot because it was a powerful moment for me. And I think it led into a multi-year transition where I changed my whole view of management. I changed my whole view of organizations and I experienced leadership in, in, in a different way than I ever had before. And it was, a, it was a simple situation, something that has happens every single day in software development. I was an intern. I was just working the front desk. I saw an email pop out. There was only about 50, 55 of us at the company at the time, still in the early days, right before League of Legends launched. And some somebody on the engineering team had committed some code. So they had written some code that day, pushed it into the kind of global uh, build and broken the build. And the play test wasn't going to be able to happen that day. And everyone was scrambling, running around, trying to figure out what was going on. And oftentimes when this happens, as you guys know, you don't necessarily know where the bad code came from, what the issue is, how to fix it. It's just kind of an all hands on deck type situation. And I saw an email go out and a guy walking around in the pit who's one of the engineers a guy would, I would work with for years afterwards and get to know really well. And he was going around and telling everybody, hey, this was me. This was my code. I busted the build. And he sent an email out to the whole office, like global, and said, hey, I, I, I screwed this up. This is me. I'm on top of it. Let me know if you have any questions. And that alone was a really interesting thing for me to see that that actually occurred. I mean, I, I tried to put myself in his shoes and it just felt like it would be an embarrassing thing. You know, it would be a scary thing to do that. And about 15 minutes later, I saw something even crazier, which was the president of the company walked out of his office. You know, we were all in one room at that time. There was only like two or three conference rooms on the edges of the, the one room we were all in. And one of them was the president's office. And he walks out and he says, I don't know if you all just saw that email that just went out where this engineer said that he broke the build, but I just want to let everybody know that that is exactly the kind of behavior we want here at Riot Games. He could have swept it under the rug. He could have denied it, but instead he stepped up and he took accountability for his mistake. And as a result, we probably saved a ton of time today having to chase this down and fix the play test. And I just want to celebrate that behavior. And it's funny because I don't think anyone else in the room really was as impacted about that event as I was in that moment. And it was because I'd never really seen that before. I'd never really seen a leader say, hey, it's safe to make mistakes here. Hey, I'm glad you stepped up and took responsibility and took accountability for the thing that you broke. And as a result, the team benefited from that. 
we all get to work and move forward a little faster because you didn't try to dodge responsibility and make us all chase this around all day. And on the topic of incentives, this is a very, to me, positive and very like resonant example of just how powerful a leader's actions can be and how powerful a leader's incentive can be when they really lift up just small little chunks of behavior. One little event that Mark Merrill came out and pointed to and said, yes, this, this is what it is to be a rioter. This is what it is to be a leader. Do more of that. Those things had such a cascading impact on the organization and the way we all viewed ourselves. And it starts changing you away from focusing on all these goofy little defensive behaviors we all exhibit in the workplace every day and pushes you towards something better, something more team focused, something more less wasteful, something more productive. And I, and I again, as a, a little newbie at that point, I know my jaw was agape and it was just really fascinating to see that. And it really influenced how I view leadership and uh, I think really was a formative experience for me on the issue of incentive. Yeah, I, I, I really like that story because it's, you know, it it's so easy. And we talked about this a little bit in the last podcast. It's so easy to see the negative and it's hard for leaders to see the positive. And that's such a great example of a leader, the president at the time, um, stepping in and saying, this is a positive example and I want to see more of this behavior. And one, how can I encourage that in this moment? Somebody just said a really great example. How do I encourage it? Um, and that is something that you just don't see a ton. It's so easy to get focused on on something else and to not realize uh, the incentives you're even setting. But here, here, you know, that president was just being really clear. I want to see more of this. This is worth celebrating and I want to see more of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's phenomenal. Yeah. And I find that transition from that being a very potentially shameful moment at a lot of different companies mm-hmm. where it's like, oh my God, I screwed up. What's everyone going to think? To all of a sudden the president of the company is lifting me up for doing a hard thing and taking responsibility. And there's no shame actually. It's it's actually reward. And, and just that dichotomy is such a fascinating thing to me. Yeah. Aaron, I'm curious, did you, after that happened, did you notice a change? Did that make any sort of qualitative change in the way things happened at, at Riot beyond that? I mean, yeah, I think that, I would say that kind of thing had a constant and just sort of permeating impact. Uh, I think for me, that was the first time I really experienced something like that. But I could tell back to what I was saying earlier that for a lot of the folks in that room who had been there a little while, I think they were used to that kind of stuff. But for me, I was like, whoa, I've never seen a leader do this before. I've never really been in a company like this. Holy shit, this is a thing people do, you know? Um, And when I saw that, it was it was formative for me. And I started to I think as a result of how impactful that moment was for me, I started to see that clear connection between those things that the leaders were doing and the incentives that they were setting and the actual behaviors that you were seeing at Riot. It wasn't just a coincidence that everyone at Riot behaved these ways. It was because the leaders were constantly reinforcing this is what good looks like. And I just cannot emphasize enough how absolutely fundamental that is to an effective culture and an effective organization. That, you know, one of the things I always try to remind myself is it took effort and it took time devoted for Mark Merrill to walk out of his office and take that 10 minutes to have that little pep talk 
with the team. He could have been drowned in his emails. He could have been on a conference call. He could have prioritized a million other things above doing that in that moment. But for him, he was like, no, I need to we, I need to make some space right now in this moment to remind everybody that this is it. This is the fucking secret sauce. This is the good stuff. And uh, that was really powerful for me. You know, they, they say leaders, um, leaders are formative to organizations and organizations take the shape of their leaders. And it's sort of this thing that everybody says. And like what you're calling out is exactly why. Uh, people look towards leaders as examples and as um, beacons of what good looks like within a space, within an organization or, or a smaller part of an organization, any, any sort of like human structure or hierarchy. And they, they look to them for, for guidance as to how they should behave. And that, that is why um, when you're interacting with a company, you often do go, wow, it, it is just interesting how this part of the, the company or the entire company, whatever it may be, actually took the form of its leaders in a very specific way, in a very direct way. Um, and, and it started like having that shape. And if that was, you know, a move towards autonomy or that was a move towards safe to fail or that was a move towards a lot of responsibility or it was a move away from those things, it, all of that is driven by how those leaders choose to relate day to day. Um, and it can it can drive people to you know, fear the wrong thing or uh, embrace the right thing um, to do hard things and not be worried about doing the hard things or because they know that they're going to be supported by by those in charge because they've seen it. And they uh, I, and this is something I, I, I always want to encourage leaders to do because there's often this pressure, you know, you, that that can happen that you have to always feel like you're in charge and you always have to feel like you have an answer and you don't want to ever look bad. And one of the things I, I'm, I'm constantly encouraging leaders to do is no, be willing to look bad because if you're not willing to look bad, everybody in your organization is seeing that. Um, and it's creating an incentive that says, Oh God, we can't look bad here. It's not okay. And it, and leaders, I think get, especially senior leaders, they get sort of double looped in there because, well, I also, I represent so much more. And if I look bad, then maybe everybody will lose confidence in me. And, you know, you can have this sort of collision of like, I want people to feel confident. I want them to feel like I know what I'm doing. But there's also this part of like, yeah, but be transparent and be honest. Because if, if you set a standard that it's not okay to make mistakes, then no one's going to want to make mistakes. No one's going to be okay with it. And, and so instead, be comfortable saying, standing up in front of a group of people and calling out positive things and also saying, hey, here's a mistake I made and own it. Um, it's it's shocking. Yeah, some people might mock you or might not understand what you're doing, um, but you're actually establishing better behavior for your entire organization. I worked for a time at Apple and in the role that I was in, it was very similar to what both of you have been describing. But at Apple, they had this mantra. They said, it was really simple. They said, we want you to do the best work of your lives Every day you come to Apple, no matter what you're going to accomplish as a human being, we want that done today at Apple. You know, no pressure, right? <laughs> so um, we did notice that uh, it was a very similar thing. They would encourage us to call out mistakes. And even though there was, okay, so at Apple, it was a little different. It was, it was you know, if you make a mistake, call it out. It, you know, it is safe to fail. It's okay. But mm -hmm. you're going to have to do whatever it takes as quickly as possible to remedy that mistake. 
And that mm. means that doesn't that doesn't just mean it's like, you know, Ben, you made a mistake. We're shaming you. Feel bad. It was, you know, OK, you've made a mistake. Pull in all the available resources you need and people would like reach out and volunteer. I can help you with that. I know exactly what went wrong. Let's go over this. And there was this sort of self-healing culture, if you will, of people that were willing to help one another and reach out whenever they saw a problem. So it was really positive. It incentivized you to go ahead and just admit, I, I messed up, I don't know what I'm doing, or I need help on this, or I misinterpreted that. And people were just more than willing to jump in and help you. There was this culture of of helpfulness that it, that had been developed over time within that company. I don't know if it's still there today, but at the time I found it very helpful in my role there. So yeah, positive incentivization is amazing in terms of what it does for morale and just overall productivity. It's interesting, one of the threads I'm seeing with all the examples we've discussed so far is this idea of vulnerability and mm -hmm. setting an example around vulnerability. Uh, it, we come back to it a lot in leadership circles nowadays, and I but I still think it's a very new idea as it is implemented. And, and honestly, I think from my experience at Riot, you know, while seeing those very powerful leadership, positive leadership incentives and how they impacted the culture, there was also this like, don't be too weak, don't be perceived as weak as mm -hmm. a leader. And I think a lot of companies fall into this with it's not even a deliberate thing. It's no, just that there, there's a there's a sort of a power stance you need to have as a leader. And I remember constantly struggling with that and and how my view of myself as a leader would create incentives for my team. I was talking mm -hmm. to Ben about this actually yesterday, and it was a it was kind of a light bulb that went on for me. I got a lot of really tough feedback in 2018 and 2017 at certain times in the leadership role that I was in. And a lot of it felt like at, in the moment from, and it was people that were working for me on my team, had a personal slant to it actually, which at the time kind of caught me off guard, but also uh, was made it more difficult to deal with that feedback. Like, oh, this feels personal. Like you're actually giving me really like direct like Aaron, I'm seeing your behaviors and you're acting like this and and it stung and it actually still stings when I think about it. And and my takeaway in that moment was, wow, I must be really screwing up. If people have feedback this deep for me, that's this on the nose and it's this painful, I must be really screwing up. And as I thought about it more, I was like, how often in my career have I actually felt safe enough to give my manager that kind of feedback? And, and then I realized that I had set up an incentive for my team that they actually felt like they could come talk to me about that stuff. They felt like they could yep. say, hey, I don't like the way you're doing this. And I think I've seen better from you, Aaron. Like on a personal level, I've seen better from you. And they felt comfortable doing that, even though I was signing their paychecks. And that's something I often look back at. And I go, that's a culture of openness that you created yep. you know and and the whole feedback and all that's obviously a separate issue of course there probably was some things i needed to work on and you know all feedback's debatable and all this but like the reality is is they felt like they could talk to me about that and that's really powerful yeah it, there's that's that's reminding me um when i came out of the military um the military uh is meaningfully less open to feedback than riot was when i joined uh you didn't you didn't 
take something to a leader who outranked you and say you did something wrong without a lot of coverage for yourself. Uh, and you tended to just accept whatever whatever was passed down the chain of command. Uh, there's a bunch of complex reasons why you know the military structured that way and why it ends up feeling that way. Again, they do relate to incentives. But it was interesting when I got to riot and I'm working in a very different environment, I struggled immensely with that. Um, I, I had a lot of trouble thinking about challenging people in authority because my default stance for my time in the military was you don't. You just make the best of whatever they say. Don't correct them because that's not going to go well for you. Um, and so I was I was being coached on this by my manager at the time. Um, and I remember there was someone who I really felt I needed to give feedback to. And my feedback wasn't great. Uh, I was fairly new to this. But I wanted to let them know, hey, you don't listen very well. Because I'd seen that in a set of meetings. But this was a senior leader. Like this was someone who ran the entire product I was working on. Uh, and so I, I set this up very carefully. I was like, okay, let's go. You know, there was a, a little bar restaurant thing nearby. And we're like, let's go there and I'll talk and or else I'll bring them. And then we'll sit down and I'll, you know, give them this feedback if you don't listen well. And um, I was like, maybe they'll fire me. I don't know. I'm t again, I'm terrified, right? This is very new for me, but I've heard that this is really important uh, to, to, to being at Riot and to, to being, a, especially being a leader at Riot. So we show up there and uh, it comes to the moment and I give them the feedback. I, I say, you know, I don't think you listen very well. And their response was nothing that I would have expected. And I'll be honest, it set back my ability to give feedback to leaders. Uh, so it just set me back by a lot. Uh, their response was, I said, you don't listen to feedback very well. They said, actually, I'm a great listener. And they proceeded to spend the rest of the meeting telling me why they were a great listener. Um, which th the irony for me is obvious looking back at that now. Um, but at the time, I just remember being so confused and also thinking, this is so pointless. Uh, like th this, you know, everybody at, at Riot is telling me this is what I should do, but like this is, this is the dumbest thing. Uh, at least I didn't get fired, and so I moved on. And again, it set me back in that progress. Later on, uh, someone who was a different person who was in that same role, uh, or a very similar one at the time, um, I had feedback for them and I sort of regained the courage to try to talk to them. Uh, and I, and it was, it was actually very similar style of feedback. It was the same thing. It was, you know, we're rushing a lot and you're not listening very well, I think, to some of what's going on. And I had a particular, um, meeting I got, I had gotten better at feedback. So at a particular meeting I could pull up to like, Hey, in this meeting, I don't think you'd listened well. And but there I am, I'm going into it and I'm, and I'm terrified. I'm like, oh geez, you know, this is gonna, this is gonna be a bad time. Um, maybe this time I will get fired, I don't know. And I went in and I said, um, hey, I don't think you listen very well. And the shocking difference in response is something I will always remember. That person who I was giving this feedback to, they were always rushing, but they stopped they slowed down dramatically in that I felt it in the room and they said, what have you seen? Um, when have you not seen me listen? Well, what would it look like? They started asking me, you know, what, what I now know are powerful questions, but I saw him almost go into like this, what they call like level two listening. He became very focused on me and very interested in what I was saying and very receptive and actually 
not only that, I saw him follow up later around the circumstance where I'd said, hey, I don't think you, you'd listened well in this, in this specific example. Um, and what was interesting is in that moment, I, it was really weird for me um, when he started responding this way. In some sense, I was like, oh my gosh, I have all this power now. Like this person's willing to listen to me and hear what I have to say about the feedback that I, that I just gave. And they've taken it super well. And, and again, just like that previous instance had set me back, this one sort of drove it forward as, wait, I can do this. Wait, some people will accept this. Um, and it it shifted how I related to people. It shifted, you know, you know, used, like as Aaron said, you know, yes, it's important to give feedback in a good way and all these different things, but take advantage of that, what was just incentivized in me to go and talk to senior leaders when I saw problems and to bring them up and to be okay challenging in these sorts of things. Like a huge shift for me. And that incentive that was not just me, he was doing that for all the people that related to him. Um, he was regularly being someone who would listen, who would accept feedback and encourage all of us to do that. I think one of my also, I, and I, I we're, we're kind of in story mode here, and this is super cool, but one of my favorite stories actually that I always, that just popped up for me that I love to tell. I love to remind everyone that uh, ARAM, uh, which is for those of you guys not familiar with uh, League of Legends or or video games in general, um, ARAM is a, is a specific sort of game mode in League of Legends that was ultra popular and, and separate from the original League of Legends main game. It was kind of like an offshoot and, and it was like a shorter session. You could knock one out in 10, 15 minutes and uh, it, it kind of attracted a different crowd. And it's still popular to this day. And it just did. It just came out of nowhere. It was. It was actually a side project during our. We had. You know, the people have heard of like the Google twenty percent or the Google fifteen percent. You guys have to remind yeah, me. Like that, the, yeah. Where yeah. where yep, they yep, just yep. let the Google the engineers work on whatever, whatever they want. Yeah. Um, and we did that at Riot. We implemented something to that effect called Thunderdome, which was a, a kind of a, a week or two long thing where we just let cut everybody loose and let them work on whatever they wanted. And what was interesting is how many of those passion projects uh, ended up making their way back into the main product. And that's another thing, too, where there's like a certain openness that the company created there and a, and a celebration of the creativity and ingenuity of the people on the ground to say, you guys have come up with something really awesome here. The players love it. Let's get it into the game. Let's take this seriously. Let's prioritize it. And I, I think that that just captures, you know, back to, again, positive incentive and culture, that just captured some of that real secret sauce, that flavor of, of working at Riot that I really enjoyed so much from the early days. Uh, and, I, and I love how many of those products existed and how many of those types of stories there were. At a lot of companies, you, you don't necessarily hear those kinds of stories. And it's, it's yet again another example of uh, there is a certain vulnerability, isn't there, actually, for the mm -hmm. product leaders and the leaders in a company to be open to that sort of thing, to be yeah. open to an idea that they didn't come up with, to be open to uh, essentially being, quote unquote, wrong on their priority and that somebody else or some other group stumbled on something that was actually more of a hit than what they had on the backlog. So I, I love that. And uh, I just think that those stories are so cool. Yeah, there's there's something there because um, I think you saw that shift over time. Um, 
and early on, it, it really made people excited to work on, to go into Thunderdomes and to go and like take on a project and, and assemble a group of people. And it was almost like, what's this, what, what huge, awesome thing could we do in this very short space of time? Um, it was so engaging because they knew that there's this possibility that this becomes real. Uh, and I mean, I think even at one point, like our, our servers moved on to Linux or something based on a Thunderdome project. Like there were huge shifts. Um, and I think later on we, we moved them somewhere else, but it was like huge projects that had just gigantic impact. Uh, and you, you saw everybody buying into it. You saw everybody getting excited because yeah, it was incentivized. It was okay. It was, first we give you permission to take the time off. We accept that we're going to lose some productivity to the normal work that's going on. Um, and second, we actually value all of the creativity that all of you are bringing to this. And we, we want to see if it can make our product better. Um, and, and again, be something that we didn't think about. I'm curious, Ben, after the Thunderdome and Aaron, either one of you jump in on this after the Thunderdome happened, whether or not one small individual team's product, uh, that they came up with made it into league or not, did you find that the behaviors changed because of the incentivization to attempt something different? So even though there was a little bit of lost productivity during the week of Thunderdome while they're coming up with this stuff, say you worked on something and your product didn't make it in, did you notice, a, like, was the overall morale higher across the company? Did it increase productivity on the back end for the main product? I and mean, what was the ultimate outcome of doing this from a company perspective? I, I think for me, there's a couple of things that came. One, yes, morale was higher. Uh, those days were exciting. And even if your idea didn't quite reach where you wanted it to, um, you'd often tested something out and learned a lot uh, in that time. And you got to see a ton of other cool rioter stuff go live. Uh, so that that was really cool. I, I actually used Thunderdome once fairly ineffectively, but once really effectively as a way to help a team, I basically used Thunderdome as an example and said, hey, think about how you worked during Thunderdome. What if we worked more like that on like every day? So instead of having everything be like this hyper-structured sort of focusing on the stuff and the content pipeline and all this, what if we just said, hey, what could we get done in the next three days? What's the most valuable thing we could get done in the next three days? And then do that again the next three days and then do that again the next three days. And honestly, I think that was a contributing factor to the, I would argue, the, the most effective team I ever worked with um, in my entire time, my, I think that's my entire professional career. Uh, because, so, so Thunderdome had a ton of benefits and, and some of them, yes, were valuable things added to the game. There was the morale boost, there was the seeing all the other cool stuff that all the other riders had done. Uh, and then there was also this, man, it taught us something about how to work and how to develop. Um, and it, it, I think one of the things that it incentivized, it actually was really important uh, to Riot. It got us away from trying to make sure everything was the absolute most bestest, awesomest thing that everything could, ever could possibly be in whatever it was. Because it's easy to get stuck in that trap of like, oh, we just ever increasing quality, be more and more and more and higher and higher, higher quality. It because we'd take something that had, someone had slammed together with a small group of people or perhaps alone, they'd slammed it together in like a three-day time period and then it would go live. And we could always make it better later, but it was valuable enough to go live as it was. And that was so cool. Like ARAM is an example of that where it went out and it was put on, turned on live as a queue for the entire product. 
Um, and actually a lot of players started playing it. And so many players were playing it that later on we updated it. We actually made it look really good. I was actually the delivery lead when I was on the environments team. Uh, that was one of the first things we did um, was update the, uh, the, the ARAM map to be Howling Abyss, what's it, what it's called today. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of positives came from it. Um, more early on, I think later on, maybe a little less so, um, but, but early on it was, it was really, really strong. It was a really, really positive impact. You said you had another story, Ben, you were about to break into something. Yeah. I, speaking again on this idea of incentives, you know, I wanted to come back to, uh, uh, I guess I'll toot my own horn and talk about a time where I think I, I did a good job with creating a different incentive than what was present. And what was a really tricky spot. Um, I just moved over into an R and D project and was in, uh, the delivery lead, I was like basically producer in charge of um, a, a large part of that, that R&D project. Um, and it was, you know, they'd been working for a long time and they had milestones that they would come up to and hit. Um, and they tended never ever to meet their milestone. And there was a pattern that would happen, which is, uh, and I think this came from a really good place initially, but it was the leadership of the project and the space I was in would immediately as soon as the, the milestone had horrifically failed, which they were always doing, um, they would take full responsibility in front of the team. They would get up and say, hey, this isn't your fault. This is our fault as leaders. Um, you're all awesome. You've been doing great work. We need to do better. And I want to call out, there's a really good part of that. There's like a total ownership aspect of that, that if you as a leader are constantly blaming everything that's not you, um, then uh, I don't think you're doing a very good job as a leader. But I also noticed that it, when I'd gotten there and I'd been there a few weeks before this milestone had concluded, um, no one seemed to care about the milestones. Like the, uh, the developers, the actual, the teams, they, they, it was like it didn't matter to them. You know, there was a milestone and here's all the stuff we're supposed to be doing. And they didn't even care. In fact, some people had openly said, yeah, we're not really worried about the milestone at all. We're just, we just are doing our own stuff. And I realized like, oh my gosh, this had created an interesting counter incentive by the leaders always absolving the team of responsibility for the milestone. The team ended up not feeling at all responsible for the milestone. And so we were talking about what we were gonna say and they, the, the leaders that were there at the time, they were sort of like, okay, well, we're gonna you know, take full responsibility and tell them they're awesome. And I was like, wait, no, I'm not, I'm not gonna do that. I need the team to actually feel some amount of responsibility for what happened. Yes, we as leaders bear uh, accountability for what happened and we certainly should feel more ownership, more responsibility for what's going on, but we can't just let everybody else off the hook. We, we collectively failed. We failed the milestone and we failed it again and it, it should matter that it, we failed. Um, we should be looking at what we can learn and how we can do better next time and not just passing it off as like, oh, leaders screwed up and I'll just keep doing my job if I'm, you know, an engineer or an artist or something like that. So I, when we got to this meeting with the whole group, I actually said that. I said, hey, um, we failed this and we all failed this. We collectively failed this. And failure isn't the worst thing in the world. You know, I talked about the benefits of learning and how we can learn from it, but I definitely put responsibility or attempted to put responsibility on the team. And I was fairly new uh, and it was pretty awkward of me to do that. It wasn't what anybody was expecting. I think some people were not happy about it at all. Um, 
And, and a few people were actually really happy. A couple people said that was a hard thing you did, and I appreciate that you did it. It needed to be done. Um, and th- so that got some positive reinforcement, but I got some negative. Some people were really like, they didn't like that at all. What happened is as we were moving towards the next milestone, that team gave us as leaders a much harder time. Hey, what are the goals? Where are we trying to go? What is this work important? What are we, you know, and that was what the point was. That was what I was trying to do. And, you know, I obviously never did anything perfectly in my life. Probably didn't do that perfectly either, but it was great to see uh, it was great to see the team engaging and pushing back and saying, oh, wait, you said I'm going to be responsible. You said I'm, you said I failed. Well, I'm, I want to make sure I don't fail again. You give me the right stuff. And we did much better at that uh, the next time around. And so I view that as like a, a, a shift of what had started off as a very well-intentioned thing that it ended up creating an incentive to not take responsibility for milestone completion that I sort of shifted to a place where now they were. And man, it creating those incentives, you know, it's funny that there's easy incentives to create that are like the easy things to do. Hey, don't like get in fist fights because nobody likes that. And, you know, everybody's going to be upset about it. Pretty straightforward. There are the ones that are tricky are the, the ones that I would say like are hard. What does it mean to be safe to fail? What does it mean to actually bring about a culture of responsibility? What does it mean to step up and say the uncomfortable thing? All of those things that you do, or, or again, even the, the Mark Merrill story from Aaron's first example around like setting up, like positively reinforcing good behavior, all of those things take effort. They're hard to do. They're hard to either remember to do or they're hard to actually do. Those are the most important things often that you're trying to incentivize inside of organizations. Yeah. And then again, it's we talked about this last time. It's not necessarily a straight intellectual line between the thing you're doing or not doing and the behavior that comes out of it. You might actually get more deliberate about this and see a gap between like, hey, I'm, this is the kind of culture I want to create. This is the, the general way I want people to be or the stuff I want them to do but they don't seem to be doing any of those things. And oftentimes it's difficult to reverse engineer, like, well, people are acting like this. Why, why are they acting like that? Like what incentives are they being given to act like that? And it's sometimes so subtle, you know, as you were talking, another story about, you know, when I worked somewhere else uh, came up for me and there was a frustration being expressed by management about why contributors or why workers or developers wouldn't like step up and take more responsibility, why they wouldn't speak up during meetings, why they wouldn't be more proactive with their work. Like we, it's like they need us to tell them everything. We have to tell them everything. And I remember talking to an engineering manager and I said, I think agility will help us and, and his response was like, Aaron, I get that you're really passionate about this stuff. I think it's cool too, but I don't think you understand that that might've worked at other companies. You tried to implement that app, but that's not gonna work here because I don't know if you've really noticed it yet, but our engineers here are really terrible. And, uh, and that was an engineering director that was telling me that. And, and, and oh, what's, gosh. what's crazy about that is like, that very non-virtuous or vicious cycle between the manager thinks that all of his employees are crappy, the director thinks all of his employees are crappy, those people for sure 
know that, mm-hmm. that he thinks that. And they're being told that this is a place where we have crappy engineers. That's being openly communicated, right? And so we're crap, like we're crappy engineers here. Like no one really, like the, the, we don't really have the talent. I imagine living in that world as an engineer is not going to make you super interested in being proactive. I mean, even, even, even if you are like wanting to be proactive, you might think that you have no right to be because you're a crappy engineer. Yeah. So, so I taught their, the managers didn't realize it, but they were talking out of both sides of their mouths, right? They were saying on the one hand, wow, we really wish these guys would step up and do more. That was the behavior they wanted to see, but the behavior that they were actually incentivizing was the complete opposite of that. And they probably yeah. had no realization that that dissonance existed. And that kind of stuff, I mean, that's obviously a almost comically extreme example. Uh, and but it's easy, I, think, I think it's yeah. so cool because it's, it's, yes, it's comically extreme, but it's also real. Like that actually happened. Mm-hmm. Like that's, it's, it's crazy. And, and we do that all the time. We like, we, we think about things as, as, as if we, like we want an ideal state, right? And we create systems and we build in our intentions into those systems. And we're like, okay, this is the thing we want. And this is what's going to come out of it. And then we don't actually look at how that system landed, at how the things that we've said and what we've encouraged, what we've discouraged, why that's causing different behaviors that to us look aberrant to the system we've created. And then we get mad at all the people where all that they're doing is they're following the incentives that have been created, but we were so focused on the intentions, right? We, well, we know we want engineers that are active and that are engaged with the process. And why won't they do that? And well, you know, maybe it's because you think they're terrible and they know that, and that's drifted around the organization. Like, you think again? Obviously, people know that stuff. It it moves no matter how well you try to hide it and only talk about it in dark corners or whatever. Everybody's gonna know that, and and so you yes, you created a system. You wanted something. You you had an intention of where you were trying to go. the The reality is, intentions matter in the law, but intentions don't matter practically when it comes to organizations. Mm. And instead, we have to think about what are we incentivizing and what is the actual impact of what we're doing. Mm. Yeah, there's a powerful, I think, thing that just came up for me because when you when you were saying that just now, one of the things that popped up for me is this struggle we have in the technology space uh, with agility and the and the processes and philosophy around agility. There's a lot of rejection of this now. It's got to this point where it's been marketed so profusely that a lot of organizations out there are just like, this is hand wavy crap. It's not practical. I don't like this. I've mm-hmm. hey, at my old company, they tried to do this scrum stuff or they tried to do this agile stuff. It didn't work. It was just the same old crap that we've always been doing. And it's funny because that right there actually speaks to the point you made about intentions versus incentives. One of the things that Ben and I talk a lot about when we're teaching this stuff is that you have to really get yourself and your organization into a state of being this stuff instead of just thinking about doing it. Because Mm -hmm. if you just try to do it, if you just read a textbook and it says, the textbook says, do these seven things and, and, and that's, that's doing the new process. And you just implement those seven things. You're still working purely off intent. If you haven't actually shifted any of your behaviors or your, your 
sort of your, the way your presence is, like how you lead, how you interact between different people, you actually haven't changed anything. You're just far more likely to hold onto your old outdated model of incentives. And, and what you'll actually do is you'll take the new structure and slowly warp it back into the old. And next thing you know, it's like you call the meeting a, a different thing than it was before. We used to have staff meetings. Now we have sprint planning. But it's like, really, right. it's the same damn thing we were doing before. We just call it a different thing now. You know, there's still somebody up front taking notes, commanding everyone around. No one has any autonomy. And yeah. it's like, I see organizations do this all the time. And this is actually really a very practical manifestation of, of the reality of how we mismanage at the incentive layer uh, all over the place. It's, it's not about what you do. It's about how you act and what you incentivize. That's going to be more powerful and create more mileage or not for you than than what you say the new process is. And I think so many leaders now, they think that they'll, they'll that, oh, well, the, things aren't working. They take, they find a new process. They went to some management offsite. They got a new process. They bring it back and they're like, okay, we're gonna do this now. And then all the problems are gonna go away. And it's like, no, the problems right. are that you actually are a poor leader. That, that's the problem. <laughs> Is your incentives, your incentives didn't change. Yeah. You added new process, but you didn't actually change the underlying incentives that drive behavior. So like you said, everything warps back to the way it was. The, the daily update meeting becomes a scrum meeting, but you do the same things. But you ask different questions because that's what the book says to do. And it, like you didn't understand it. Um, and so you didn't, you didn't create new incentives around. I, I love that. That's, that's such a, a phenomenal point. It reminds me of... Um, an example around, uh, there was a, a survey when we were at Riot that they would do, and this was actually really cool, and it took a lot of work, and I really appreciate that the organization did this. It was called the Global Riot Survey, or the GRS. And every, on some cadence, I think it was started off every six months, maybe went to every year at some point, I don't know. Um, they would ask the entire company a huge set of questions about, hey, do you have good product vision? Do you have uh, how do you feel about the company's direction? How do you feel we're doing culturally? All these different things. Now, none of these things are perfect. They aren't going to catch all the problems, but it was really cool to see the entire organization valuing the time spent to gather that information and then taking it seriously. There were some weird edge case stuff that would happen sometimes, though, where what you were actually incentivizing people to do was to have better GRS scores. Um, because we didn't have a, uh, very many, and this is, I think, common for startups that are growing fast. You didn't have a ton of different ways to evaluate what success meant. And so uh, uh, I would say one anti-pattern that emerged from this, which was overall a very positive thing, was that you'd almost be evaluated based on your G the GRS scores of your team. And so this was this got really weird. Like we had a team, I think, that was consistently incredibly high. Aaron, you know more about this team than I do. Um, they were consistently very, very high on this GRS survey. But I, I actually want to hand you the, the 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 mic on this one because, like, you actually showed up on that team. Yeah. Um, the, and the, sort of how did that go? Yeah, the long and short of it was that they kind of figured out that if they just all and, – and to be fair, they all had a, a lot of feel-goods about the team. They were yeah. – the, the culture of the team was not one of challenge – it was not one of like open feedback. It was one very much of like, hey, I need in, in public, 
together. I need to show up for you almost as like a brother, as a friend, as a, as a, like you're, we're family. We'll all talk shit about each other at the water cooler because really we have a lot of frustrations that we haven't aired, a lot of grievances that we had aired. But if somebody else from outside the team comes and asks us how we're doing, phenomenal, phenomenal. That's the answer. And so again, these metrics were self-reported. So this team would say, we're doing great. And they would just be stellar, like above teams where it's like, you didn't have to be super discerning about the team environment to look and be like, I don't know that much about what's going on with these guys, but I know they're not doing better than literally every other team in this space. <laughs> not, I would actually probably stack rank them culture-wise in the bottom half, but uh, it was really interesting because that ended up again, they, there was no one coming to them and saying, hey, what did you guys learn? Uh, or what did we learn? Like, where are the areas that you need help? What, what should we improve based off this feedback? What, what, the, what they were being incentivized based on was like, your scores are really good, nice job, guys. Or your scores were not good, there was a lot of red bars on your scores. Not right. so, not good, guys. And, and, if, and if it becomes just that, just that simple, now all of a sudden it doesn't actually, and, and, it, and it, what's funny though is if you had gone back to intent and you would have asked the people who built the GRS and the people who are stakeholders for it, why did you make this? They probably would have said something like, well, we want to know where to improve. We want to know where to change right. the company so we can make things better for everybody. We want to really know what life is actually like on the ground so we can make sure Riot stays accountable to its core principles, like all good stuff. Yep. But how quickly again that the, the intermediary layers and, and poor incentive at those layers can quickly turn it into something completely different. There, there was, I remember at one time, and now I look back at this like with some personal shame. And there's many stories like that in my life actually, but um, I remember <laughs> taking a group of teams I was um, leading and I was like, oh, how am I doing? And I took the GRS scores and I averaged them all out and then I compared them to the other similar organizations to mine to figure out, am I doing better? And, and I remember thinking about it later and I was like, what was I doing? But that's not the point of the self-reported information. To your point, and actually a lot of the positives did come from teams looking at their information and improving it. Mm -hmm. But there I was locked into this idea of, no, I want to have better numbers. I want to have a better score than everybody else. And I did this, com like I spent all this time building it out in Excel of like, okay, what's my average score overall versus this other person versus this other? None of that mattered. That wasn't the intention. And the other thing that came out of that that desire to appear good because it meant that no one would bother you was that Aaron, when you showed up on that team, and I remember this, you tanked their score. Like you crushed their score. Like they were top of the company for years running. You show up and you, I remember it was like, uh, this is crazy. Like you don't, you're not focusing on value well. Um, there's not a cohesive direction you're trying to go. Like there's no vision for what good would look like next year. It's there were there's people I'm on the team who are like not even doing any work. Like, yeah, yeah. It, was, it was all this stuff. And then you went <laughs> and in no and, one and can you call them out on it. <laughs> right. You went in with an and there was another leader at this time, uh, another really, really good producer um, and actually started shaking that up. And the team originally was like, well, we don't like any of this because suddenly they were held to account for things that they were responsible for. Um, and suddenly they, there were actually expectations about like, well, what does it mean to deliver well? And what does it mean to not? And let's improve. Yeah, suddenly they were giving each other difficult feedback about performance. And it was really, it went from like brotherly love to really, really yucky overnight. It's like, wow, all the dirty laundry is just out in the middle of the, 
the living room floor and it's kind of stinky and it it's not fun anymore right. in a way to and, come come to work because like we now like it's all there we know now who's not doing a good job and what everyone really thinks and and it's like yeah we we tanked it it was a, the idea was that we would tank it short term to get to actually do some real healing and get to a better place yeah. and clean and clean up shop because we we knew that again those numbers while looking very good on paper were not actually delivering the value, delivering the outcomes that we wanted and right. uh, that we would have to rip rip it apart to put it back together again. But again, it just shows you how in that scenario, actually, interestingly enough, uh, the survey results were actually not helpful. They actually worked against us. Yes. And w- I think one of the other things to note on that, it is only it was only your incredible credibility as a leader that allowed them to not remove you from the team because they there were people that were arguing like, hey, you tanked the score. You must be a bad leader, right? They were the best team in the company according to these results. And, and if you hadn't had that credibility, which is interesting because to come back to that idea of incentives, what were people incentivized to do? Yeah. Were you incentivized to create happy teams? Were you incentivized to create value-creating teams? Hopefully both. Um, but purpose and meaning and value and player uh, focus, those were the things that we really wanted from our teams. There were, there's definitely, there, there was a line that was through that, a thread that unfortunately ran through the GRS. And again, a lot of really great things came from it. So I don't want to like, I'm not knocking the, the, the survey, um, but there was a thread that came through it that caused leaders to go, if I can keep my team happy, man, that, that's going to look good. And so if I can just get positive GRS results, it kind of doesn't matter whether my team's actually effective or not, because we don't track that as much as we track the GRS. The GRS seems to matter a lot. And this, again, comes back to this idea of, hey, how do you measure the success of a team or not? Everything you measure creates an incentive. So we measured how did teams feel about themselves, and that's what mattered a lot. And we didn't measure as well did you deliver value? Did you deliver the value you want? Are you learning? Are you a more effective team than you were six months ago? We didn't measure that stuff. And it's hard to measure. Like I'm not like a lot of companies struggle with measuring that kind of thing. But you know, there it was, it wasn't being measured. So the thing that was measured, we started leaning towards and suddenly it was more important as a a leader, a producer in a space to have your team really like you um, instead of having your team actually be really effective. Um, and that, again, that was that wasn't more of an edge case, but it, it absolutely happened, and it was an incentive thing. This is all great stuff, guys. I'm curious. You know, uh, I've worked professionally in the audio scene uh, on various games across a lot of different teams. Most of the teams that I deal with are artistic in nature, like I'm dealing with the artists or the mm. animators to combine sound with. You know, so the way that those teams those teams have very different personalities than mm-hmm. engineering teams right or people that are working on backend systems or databases or whatever you need to to do the infrastructure of the game right most of the, the, the very different personalities much more much more sensitive there's a lot more ego involved on you know whether or not you you think their art is good or the sound asset is good or you know does this animation look right or whatever in your experience at Riot or anywhere else that you've worked, have you uh, did did those kinds of of teams? Have you worked with those kinds of teams? And if so, did that change the way you needed to interact with them in terms of incentivization? Did you have to approach them in a different way? Was there anything that would be like? Would you approach that differently than you would like a you know a hardcore uh, 
uh, engineering team or something like that. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I have. I'd be interested. Yeah. Ben has worked far more with artists than I have historically. I, I have a decent amount, but I and I also have probably a pretty biased view of this. But I'm interested in your thoughts, Ben. What do you think? Man, this is. It's funny. This question came up over and over and over. Um, there was another guy that Aaron and I worked with named David. And for a long time at Riot, he, David and I were the two content dev managers. And we were both incredibly frustrated that all of the literature around how to work effectively and all these different things all focused so much on engineering. But here we had these, you know, sometimes 14 different dis distinct discipline uh, te like teams that were operating, creating content, and there were all these artists and writers and designers and all these things. And um, the question, did I approach it differently? The answer is yes, but probably not. I don't think it was because they were artists. I think it was because the, the nature of the work was subtly different. Um, it, there's less less malleability of skill set in some cases. Um, like if I've got a back-end engineer and a test engineer, they can still speak a similar language around coding. And so if they're on a team together, uh, they can speak a similar language. But if I have an engineer on the same team with a concept artist, that's a very different space to operate in. And so there, there were things that I would try to do to enable, um, well, actually, it's a lot of cases to minimize wasted time, um, even some best practice stuff for, uh, you know, what you what, like scrum best practice, you know, everybody should be together estimating. And there are times where I was like, actually, I don't think that's helpful. Having the concept artists estimating engineering work is kind of silly. Um, and there's arguments you can make, well, you know, they'll pick up things on the side and I've heard that argument before, but I'm like, it's not worth the time. Um, and so there, there were things I would shift. There were approach differences that I would make, but the core idea of like what you're trying to incentivize and this idea of like, they're all the, the artists are hypersensitive or there's too much pride or there's ego. Maybe there was a slight trend line there. But honestly, a lot of that is stereotype. And ultimately, I was dealing with people. And if I could get the artists to be humble and focus on the value that the team was trying to create, that was the same thing I was trying to do in engineering groups. Can I get this group of people to be humble, cross-functional, and focused on the thing we're trying to deliver? Um, can, I help, can I get this group of people to build trust with each other and share a goal? Um, and I think that was where it was a little harder sometimes because the distinct, the, the number of disciplines, right? Like to create a champion, you know, you've got your narrative design um, and concept kind of working together uh, to get the seed ready. And then it goes into, you had to 3D model it. And some companies even have like the 3D modeler and then the texture artist, the, those are often the same thing uh, at, at Riot, which I think was good. Um, then you'd have to rig it, then you'd have to animate it, then you'd have to do particles like VFX, you know, you'd be a VFX artist um, or technical, some people call it a technical artist. Technical artist could be a different thing too and you might have those and then you go to audio and then you got QA and like all these distinct disciplines um, meant that it was easy for individuals on teams to focus on their stuff 
rather than the value that the team was trying to deliver. That was actually the hardest thing in terms of shifting from uh, like, hey, let's take you know a group of four engineers and uh, a designer and a QA or something like that style of team to a content creation team was it was a little bit harder because there were so many steps and there was actually a pipeline that was a little bit less negotiable. Um, it, it was a little bit harder and more effort needed to be invested in making sure everybody was focused on the value together and incentivizing that shared goal rather than, you know, the animators just being interested in like, I want to create the absolute best animations and I don't really care about anything else. I just want the best animations. That's all that matters to me. That would be the thing I would be trying to break um, and break down a little bit and keep that instead of more cross-functional, more value-oriented. And there was actually a, um, a an art director uh, slash environment artist that I knew, and I loved how he framed this. Um, and I disagreed with this guy all the time, but massive respect for him. Um, he's I, I'd say he's the best principal artist I ever worked with uh, in my time at Riot. And he always said, I'm not an artist, and I'm not an environment artist. Uh, I'm a game developer. I'm a game developer first. That's what I do. And so whatever I need to do to help the game ship, to help the game be successful, that's what matters. Um, and sometimes that means I do my environment art and I do it to a very high quality. And sometimes I rough sketch something out real fast to prove a concept. Um, but it's not about me just exercising my expertise. So here's my question to you. Does that answer yours? I think that's brilliant. I think that offers some real insight and adds a lot of value to the whole topic of incentivization. Yeah, that's excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, did you want to add anything, Aaron? Or? Well, one of the things that I'm thinking about per your question is on the I, on the subject of incentive, there's sort of, I'm thinking about as a discipline, like out in the broad world, like what are the things I need to be a good engineer and what are going to be the things that cause people to hire me as a good engineer? versus what are the things that cause people to hire me as a good artist or a good designer. And it's interesting to note that I'm gonna make some general statements and some of it might be controversial, but I, it's, it's, it's based on what I've seen. It'd be interesting actually if anybody listens to this and disagrees to hear their feedback. I, I, I view engineering as a discipline, as having more, it packaged into the idea of being a good engineer, generically speaking, being a good problem solver. And that the purpose of writing code and the purpose of good engineering is to solve more and more valuable, more and more complex problems. Um, it is rarer to see the idea of elegance or the idea of beauty or the idea of like the more subjective analyses of value come into the engineering world. And oftentimes when it does, it's seen as an anti-pattern. Like when an engineer just wants to create really beautiful code that's not practical, we often dissuade them away from that and say, hey, focus on what's important, make it work. We're here to make it work, right? Not to make it beautiful. Um, and that often becomes a contention point. So, so the models for incentive for engineers actually, from what I've seen in a macro context, are very much pushing them away from that and towards problem solving. Now, what's interesting is like, on the art side of the equation, I feel like, especially in games, it's the opposite. Um, now, it's not to say that problem solving isn't important to artists, I think it is. But, but like, I think to be really to make a name for yourself 
as an artist to really like move up the ladder as it were, like to be like a really premier artist, a lot of what allows people to make that judgment about you is going to be the efficacy, like the qualitative level of your, of the work that you've done. Um, and, and how high quality the products you've worked on are perceived to have been. Um, and again, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts on this, Ben, but it would be my, even if your game were very successful, but it were like super, I'm going to be, you know, crude for a second, like super Nintendo level graphics, like something like a Stardew Valley or whatever. I, I think there's some people that would feel like it was a resonant thing. If you were like, I was the artist on Stardew Valley. Versus mm -hmm. like I was, I did all the character art on Diablo three. I feel like re like regardless of how you view those two games as games, like good or bad games next to each other, I feel like people are going to respond more favorably to the fact that you were the person who did the character art in Diablo three, because I mean, there's, it's undoubtedly significantly higher quality. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, so there's this, there's this aesthetic sort of, uh, again, artistic quality bar that I think exists for being an artist. And therefore, I think a lot of the incentive is because I've seen artists come onto my projects and realize that they weren't really going to get to flex their muscles. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean, like the stuff we were asking them to do was so below their capability level because that was what was important to get the thing done. Uh, like you, Ben, you gave an example earlier where we were teaching about gray boxing some stuff, proverbially gray boxing some animations, like something that he, the guy could have knocked out in 15 minutes, but he was just like, ah, and it's like, if you make him do that enough times, it's like, he's starting to ask himself, like, am I going to like, is, are, am I going to be able to get like a really good job as a really good artist or a really good animator somewhere else? If all I've been doing is gray boxing the last three years, even if that was what was best for the team, am I going to be able to sell myself in that way? And it's, it, it's just one example of how I feel like the incentive structure is different. And so I, f I feel like you run into different kinds of behaviors as a result of that. And that, that there's probably a bunch of other incentives too that differentiate the two groups. But that was just one that popped up in my head. Like, what, what mm. do you think about that, Ben? I'm curious. Oh man, a lot of thoughts. Um, so I, I really love where you, like sort of the line you've, you've drawn. Um, or maybe just the, the distinction between the two. And one thing to note, there, there's actually a lot of artists that would look at Stardew Valley and say, that's amazing art. Because it it, it does solve the problem and it, and it hits and it hits this like beautiful pixel art look that a lot of games that attempt pixel art don't quite pull off as well. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of subtlety and nuance even to doing pixel art well. And so I think you could see somebody that was very well regarded for doing something like pixel art incredibly well. It would be the same thing as someone, if someone wanted to have an old sounding style game, you know, Krista, kind of your expertise, and they did it all in MIDI. Um, but if they did it really well, like a sound artist might be like, that's really impressive. Like that, that was really well done. In fact, when I, when I go back, if I go back and I like play Dark Forces, um, it's, uh, it's, it's an ancient game and it's, it's all MIDI, but it's amazing. It's amazing what they did in MIDI. So, so I, anyway, I think, I think there is, there is something where what quality even means, it can be subjective, mm -hmm. but to your point, we, we do look at somebody who can do like a very nice painted style, like something that just seems consistently beautiful or timeless or whatever it might be. There's something there that we can latch onto. And when I look at that and I compare it to engineering, 
there are actually elements of that that are in engineering as well. To your, like you said, there's the idea of elegance and beautiful code, um, but it's. I think it's not obvious. And so, when if I if I hack something together um, in code, but it kind of runs sufficiently well, nobody who's playing it is going to have any issue with it. But if I hack something together artistically. Um, while some really good artists can do a similar thing and like make a hack together thing still come out pretty well, um, a lot of times it's much more obvious. You know, the, the visual gray boxing or the visual temp texture is often really obviously not right. Um, and so there is this like connection that forms between what is quality and my work and they, they're always perceived as the same. Where in engineering, you actually get the opposite problem that you and I have both encountered, which is an engineer goes and they said, well, they wanted me to test this thing out. So I did. Here's this hack together, non-sustainable, horrifically coded, uh, running off of the server that I keep under my desk thing. Um, <laughs> and somebody sees the result of it and they go, And then next thing you know, you're like, we let's, solved it. You're like, next thing you know, we're like, let's ship that. We'll, we'll take it live. Right. And then, the, <laughs> and then you see the engineer just like the blood drains from the face, right? And it's like, Wait, wait, you want me to, no, you don't understand. It's running, it's it's right there, right? Like if I move my foot the wrong way, the server yeah. shuts down. Yeah, no worries, you know, man. And we'll put that like, into AWS and get it rolling. Let's do this. Right, and, and that's, and so it's almost the reverse problem where where the artist has the more obvious, um, is this quality or not? The engineer, it's masked. Uh, and there's a danger in having it masked. Uh, meaningful danger because yeah, then you have some hacked janky thing. And I mean, I've been the producer, right? I, I, Aaron, you've probably been the producer too, where they're like, Hey, this is pretty hacked together. And you're sort of like, yeah, but, but, but could it work? Like, could, could we ship it? And the, and again, you, the engineer, you know, has a very different problem than the artist where when that's hacked together, it's like, well, you know, I've only got sort of keyframes set up for this mm -hmm. animation. No one's going like, Oh yeah, we could ship that. Like, no, you obviously have to like spline <laughs> that out and like get that working properly. Um, so, so anyway, it, like, yeah, there's, there's, there's a difference in, I think when I look at the work, when I look at the outcome for engineering, everything is under the, but it's behind the curtain. And for an artist, everything is right there. And that probably does a couple of things. One, the artist is therefore more directly able to identify and attach to the work that they've done. And criticism of the work probably feels very personal to them. Like, hey, you criticized the sound you just heard. Well, that, you know, at some level, and I, you know, I gotta be able to take my feedback, but like at some level, I feel that because I feel like I didn't do a good job mm -hmm. or, or I realized I could have done better or you don't like it and I'm not happy about that or something. Where the engineer, it's like, well, I didn't, you didn't like how the screen showed up. Okay, the code I wrote might still be very good. You just want me to fix the screen. And there's this, there's a, like an intermediary level. I wonder, because to, to, I love that you brought this up. I wonder if that actually makes feedback easier in some sense in that space where it is behind the curtain. Um, and where actually the place where engineers get the tough feedback is when they're doing sort of over the shoulder code reviews or they're pair programming or they're doing something where they're like kind of, you know, someone who actually is an expert is kind of punching you in the face about your code a little bit. Um, yeah, obviously that can happen on the artistic side too, but man, it's, Oh man, it's, you use tabs. Oh yeah. Well, it's, it's <laughs> like on the art side, 
it's so easy for anybody to come in. I mean, you, you see it, like you see it in, in critique of games, right? People online who are not game developers and they're perfectly entitled to do this will go and say, oh, that art's terrible, right? But it's, it's almost too easy because there's no appreciation for what went into making that. Like you don't know, you don't know how many uh, kilobytes or megabytes he had to fit that texture into. Like you don't know anything about the constraints of the system or how difficult that was for that artist to make. All you know is like, yeah, it looks jank to me, right? And then you say that, and again, it's like a personal direct attack. The equivalent on the engineering side is, you know, if there's like a million bugs and things don't work properly, then yeah, you're gonna you can be like, yeah, hey, this game is buggy and dumb and like I hate it and whatever. They never can patch anything because I don't know why they blah blah blah. Yeah, but get it's, another it's again, server, Riot. Come on. Yeah, um, it's and I. To, to come back to the concept of incentives, I wonder if that actually does create meaningfully different incentives for artists because it is so obvious and they are so directly attached to the work that they're doing than to engineers. Um, a cool thing to think about. So we've just wrapped up talking to you guys about incentives. And to give a quick summary, what we're really talking about here is how the things we do every day and the systems we set up can create the reality of certain behaviors happening in those around us and how we all want to be aware of that. And similarly, create behaviors in ourselves based on the world of incentives that we live in. So one of the things I want to leave you guys with is talk about this stuff. Talk to the people around you, talk to your managers, talk to your family. There might be all kinds of things that you feel compelled to do, ways that you feel compelled to act that maybe you don't want. So if you open this stuff up and get the discussion going, you can expose these things and really start creating a much more virtuous cycle instead of the one you might be caught in. You've been listening to the Valarin Perspective. Send us your thoughts at perspectives at valarinconsulting.com. That's Valarin, V-A-L-A-R-I-N. And make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Valarin Inc. 